Ephesians chapter 4, for our, our study this morning, verse 1, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There's one body, one Spirit, just as you were also called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Now, this expression, he ascended, what does it mean except that he also had descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is himself also he who ascended far above all the heavens, so that he might fill all things. And he gave some as apostles, and some as prophets, some as evangelists, some as pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith, and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a result, we're no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness in deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into Him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. Father, what a, what a profound word. And so much here that, that we need your spirit to reveal and to, to explain, to bring understanding. And Father, to take us far beyond understanding, and that is to the application of what is written here in our lives and in this church fellowship. Help us, Father, to live as we have been called, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which we've been called. In Jesus' name, Amen. How do you understand the work of the Holy Spirit? Well, how do you see it? How, how do you uh, recognize the Spirit of God at work? You know, talking about the Holy Spirit is, is a completely wide-ranging subject in the church. The understandings that people have about the Spirit of the living God are from one extreme to the other. And in this fellowship... We have, we have people who have come from both extremes, which is great. How do you understand the work of the Holy Spirit? In 1964, the beloved Disney classic Mary Poppins hit the silver screen. My family got to sit down and watch it again, you know, starring Julie Andrews and Dick Van Dyke as the lovable Bert. And it's been viewed and reviewed by families worldwide for over 50 years now. And so when we were on vacation, we gathered in my parents' den and three generations of Crawford sat and watched Mary Poppins. My kids have been convinced for years that my mom is Mary Poppins. <laughs> but we watched that together and I love the scene where the two children, Jane and Michael, bring their suggestions for the hiring of a nanny. Perhaps you remember this. They sing it in a song form. I'm not going to sing it for you. But they say, if you want this choice position, have a cheery disposition. Rosy cheeks, no warts. Play games, all sorts. You must be kind. You must be witty. Very sweet and fairly pretty. Take us on outings. Give us treats. Sing songs. Bring sweets. Never be cross or cruel. Never give us castor oil or gruel. Love us as a son and daughter and never smell of barley water. If you won't scold and dominate us, we will never give you cause to hate us. And then they sing a little more about what they promise not to do. And they finally finish out singing, Hurry Nanny, many thanks. Sincerely, Jane and Michael, thanks. 
And it's a sweet moment. It's very cute. And you may be sitting there wondering, what in the world does the Holy Spirit of the living God have to do with Mary Poppins? (laughs) Well, there are some similarities. I mean, grant me a little leeway here this morning. He's kind. Uh, He loves us like a son and daughter, right? He never smells of barley water. (laughs) He doesn't scold or dominate. Rather, the Spirit of the living God exhorts and He encourages. But that's about as far as we can go in comparing the Holy Spirit to a fictional umbrella-toting, cloud-floating nanny. You know, the thing is, and I was watching it, and I I recognize that that we desire those characteristics of kindness and goodness and love. We desire those because truly the Holy Spirit is present in this world. And as I'll show you in just a moment, even non-believers recognize that to to a certain degree. And there are things that we want, that we long for, and it's because those things are available, are actual, are real. But sadly, in church circles, the Holy Spirit has been a Mary Poppins to some. A purveyor of spoonfuls of sugar. Which, by the way, that entire scene is like a drug trip. Okay, when they're cleaning the nursery and she's handing out medicine for them to take, what's that about? (laughs) The Holy Spirit has been seen by some as a, a curious diversion who plays games all sorts. By my experience... That's not the spirit of the living God. But I don't want you to run on my experience. Because yours may be very different. What did Jesus say His Holy Spirit would do? Now, understand this. I really had to process this thinking for a few minutes. The Bible sets boundaries on God. Did you know that? That he did that. The Bible being the word of God, he set forth boundaries. You might say he gave parameters for the parakletos, which is the biblical word for the helper, the comfort of the Holy Spirit. He set boundaries for himself. The limitless God set limits on himself. Why is that? Oh, understand, it's not for him. It's not because he might get out of control. It's because we do. And it's because we misunderstand Him. And so He very clearly says, this is what I'm going to do. This is how you know it's Me. This is how you can understand and be sure and be aware and be certain, rather than a Joseph Smith coming out of the wilderness and saying, I had this experience. Oh, how do we know? Well, there is no way of knowing. But the Holy Spirit of the living God is described both in person, in work, in deed, in what He does in the Scriptures. The nature of God in His Spirit so that we could know we're being led in truth and not by whims of fantasy. Jeremiah 17 verse 9 tells us, and we've seen this verse many times, that the heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? And my friends, if you come on a Sunday to listen to the experiences, the spiritual experiences of Rick, you're going to very quickly find yourself confused and in a world of hurt. But when we run on personal experience over biblical revelation, we can find ourselves confused. Or worse, in error, faster than you can say Mary Poppins. Or as Bert says in the movie, Bob's your uncle. I don't even know what that means. Let's simplify this. The Spirit has three mandates. Now I want you to keep your finger in Ephesians chapter 4 and I want you to turn back to John 16. John chapter 16, where Jesus Himself, on the night of His betrayal, gave three very specific mandates that declared what His Spirit would do when He sent His Spirit so that we would not be left orphans. John chapter 16, verse 7. Follow these through. I'm going to simplify it again. John 16, verse 7. Jesus says, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper, the parakletos, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And he, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Okay, stop right there. That's the first thing the Spirit 
would do. The first mandate of the Holy Spirit. Jesus says, I'm sending my spirit back into the world. Why? For the conviction of the sinner. And in this way, everybody on the planet does get influenced one way or another by the Holy Spirit. The conviction of the sinner. When He comes, He is going to convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. That's something He does. It's something He's doing. In fact, because He did it, we are all saved. Because at one time I was a sinner in need of God, not understanding God into the Holy Spirit of God convicted me. And when that conviction came, then I was able to make a a decision, a choice. I was able to recognize something under conviction that I could not have recognized without the work of the Holy Spirit. It's something He does. He he says in in verse 9, says, concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. What does that mean? Well, that simply means that unbelief is the root of sin. He's going to convict the world of their unbelief. Of their sin by unbelief in verse 10. He says, and concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you no longer see me. What does that mean? Well, that means very simply that Jesus wouldn't be here for people to see righteousness in person. And so once He was gone, the Spirit comes now to convict us of what is right. Even though we can't see Jesus, and I'm talking about the sinner, again, someone who's outside of His Word, who's not connected to Jesus, who's not seeing and understanding and and receiving the revelation of Christ, how do they know what's right and wrong? This goes beyond conscience, my friends. This isn't just the sense of right or wrong. This is the Holy Spirit telling someone what you're doing is wrong. And what this is over here is right. It's the conviction of righteousness. The Holy Spirit does that. And in verse 11, Jesus says, And concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. That is, Satan has been judged. And you know what that means? That means even the sinner knows judgment's coming. That's why people get uncomfortable when you start talking about things that would bring judgment. Because they know. How do they know? Because the Spirit is convicting this world, convicting the sinner of judgment. So that's the first thing that we know very clearly the Holy Spirit does as He comes into the world is the conviction of the sinner. Second thing, the comfort of the saint. I love this. The comfort of the saint. The parakletos. Helper is what we see translated in the New American Standard Bible, but it also means comforter, advocate, one who comes alongside. And Jesus describes that in verse 12. I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. But when He, the Spirit of truth, comes, He will guide you into all the truth. He will not speak on His own initiative. But whatever he hears, he will speak. See, there's another spiritual boundary that's remarkable to me. That God tells us his spirit will not speak anything just randomly or on his own, but will only speak what he hears. In other words, he's only going to speak the mind of God. And it goes on and says, he will disclose to you, Jesus says, what is to come. He will glorify me. I've said this many times. If Jesus is not lifted up and glorified, it's not a work of the Holy Spirit. Because that's what He does. He will take of mine, Jesus says, and will disclose it to you. All things that the Father has are mine. Therefore, I said that He takes of mine and will disclose it to you. That is the comfort of the saint. As the Spirit discloses the Word of God, the the Word who is God, again, that is Jesus. And there are few things that are more comforting, and you've already experienced it this morning, than glorifying Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Few things that are more comforting than coming into the presence of Father God. And the Spirit does this. He comforts the saints. But all of that, that's that's just intro to what I really wanted to talk about this morning. Because the Spirit comes for the conviction of the sinner, the comfort of the saint, but I believe one of the most overlooked and yet absolutely vital functions of the Holy Spirit is this, number three, the connection of the soma. Soma is just the Greek word for body, and I needed an S word to fit in there. The conviction of the sinner, the comfort of the saint, the connection of the soma, or the body. And this is the one that gets forgotten. 
The connection of the body. Now, we've outlined Ephesians into three sections. I shared with you before I left on vacation that section one would be chapters one through three. And if you haven't gotten this, that was the heights of the heavenlies. And the Lord takes us to heavenly places in those three chapters. Marvelous. But now as we step out of that, we come into chapters four and five, part two, the walk of the worthy. And then we will finish out the book in chapter six, the fight of the faithful. And that's how I've kind of chosen to outline it, although you can also just split the book, chapters 1 through 3, from chapters 4 through 6. Chapters 1 through 3 are doctrine. Chapters 4 through 6 are application. And that's the style of Paul. Every one of his letters, he always begins with doctrine, lays it out, makes it clear, and then he shows you how to apply it. And that's where we are right now in Ephesians chapter 4. We head into the practical, and what we get right out of the gate is an absolutely fundamental directive. Look at it in verse 3, and that is being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So understand this. If we desire, truly desire, the presence of Jesus in this or any church fellowship, unity and peace are not just nice sentiments They are absolutely essential. They are to be what we are to be about. Unity and peace. Keep that in mind and let's walk this through. Verse 1 of chapter 4. Paul says, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. Boy. Think about what he just said. Folks, walk worthy. Worthy of what, Paul? Worthy of your calling. Oh, man. You know what? I'm not worthy. I am not. Not of this calling. I am not up to it. I am not worthy of it. I did not earn it. Of course you haven't. And neither have I, and neither had Paul. If you look back in verse 8 of chapter 3, he says, To me, the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ. He recognizes both the calling and his unworthiness to the calling. And yet he dares here to tell you, to tell me, walk in a manner that is worthy of the calling. For crying out loud, Paul, how do we do that? You know, Paul was, in my estimation, the most spirit-filled man in all history with the exception of Jesus. When I read what Paul wrote, what is revealed to the church through this apostle, by the Spirit of God, it's stunning. And yet Paul himself says, I'm the least of all the saints. So what can this mean to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called? Get this. The more you mature in Jesus Christ, the more you will know this truth. You do not make the calling worthy. The calling makes you worthy. You don't bring worth to the calling. The calling brings worth to you. You don't bring value to the table. You receive value at the table of the Lord. I walk in the... I have been called. Therefore, I have already been made worthy. So walk like it, Rick. That's all Paul is saying. Romans chapter 8, verse 30, he said, These whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. Who? Jesus. And he did all the work. So when he lays out the calling, it is his calling that justifies us. It is his calling that glorifies. His calling makes me worthy. I don't walk in a manner worthy to make God love or approve of me. I walk in a manner worthy because He already does. And that's something more Christians struggle with than perhaps anything else. I'm saved, yes I am, but I'm not worthy. Then walk worthy. Because the truth is, brother and sister, if you believe in Jesus Christ, if you have received Him as your Lord and Savior, you are worthy. Oh, I don't feel... That was one of my mom's problems with Mother's Day every year. 
She was not worthy of the flowers and the cards and the early morning breakfast that our entire family hated getting up for. She was not worthy of it. How many brothers or sisters in Christ, how many of you have sat there feeling like, I'm just not worthy? And now I'm told I have to walk in a manner worthy of the calling? I'm, I'm not worthy. My friends, He made you worthy. We are already loved and approved by Father God simply because we received Jesus Christ, His Son. And once you've received Him, worthy. Isn't that marvelous? I mean, can you, can you accept that? I, I really hope you can. I heard the other day that someone for the first time said, I realized that by the grace of God, I'm not going to be left behind. This is someone who's been sitting in this fellowship for years, and I must have said that 1,400 times. I'm like, why didn't they hear it? And then I realized sometimes we're not able to hear things until we're able to hear them. Please hear this this morning. Please, I'm begging of you, hear this today. You have been made worthy. You are worthy, not by your efforts, but by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Does anybody here think the blood of Jesus is not worthy? Well, it is that blood that purchased your salvation, therefore worthy. So walk like it. Doesn't that suddenly become much more simple? I walk as I have been called. What does that walk look like? Oh, Paul's going to tell us. Verse 2. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love. See, these, all these characteristics, and I've got them circled in my Bible. Humility, gentleness, patience, love. Wait a minute. Love, patience, gentleness. That's the fruit of the Spirit. Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23 lists out even more. But those are primary characteristics of the fruit of the Spirit. And by the way, all humility recognizes that the fruit in me has been seeded and cultivated by Him. So He makes me worthy, and then He seeds spiritual fruit in me, and He begins to grow this in me. And the whole time I'm sitting there going, wow, I just followed Jesus And the next thing I realize, I'm more patient than I was two years ago. I follow after the Lord. I focus on Him, and He cultivates love in me and joy. I'm happy now, and I really wasn't that happy before. And all of this, we talked about this as we studied through Galatians 5. This is the work of God in you. This is what the Holy Spirit does in you. He grows this beautiful spiritual fruit. He develops them in us and among us to be experienced by us. And He does it to connect His church. He does it for the sake of unity. Now before I get on to unity in verse 3, notice this though, He does make a comment, and in our culture we have to address it, showing tolerance for one another in love. Don't confuse tolerance in love with tolerance for sin. Because it's not the same thing. Well, you're, the Bible says you've got to be tolerant of me and my lifestyle and what I do. No, it does not. It says showing tolerance in love. And there are some sin behaviors, sin lifestyles that honestly, it is unloving of me just to tolerate your sin. If I love you, I will tell you. And I would hope if you love me, you're going to call me on my sin. You're going to make me aware of it, whether I am or not. That true love, looking at parents, fathers and mothers, what do they do? We call our kids out. You don't just let them run roughshod all over the house, do whatever they want. You call them out in the sin of leaving all the dishes on the counter on Mother's Day morning for father to clean up while mom was still in bed. (laughs) And I'm talking about deep sin here. Tolerance in love. Tolerance in love, my friends. Our culture has a very diluted perspective of love. And it is not biblical. Tolerance being do whatever you want and we'll just accept each other as we are with no change. Hey, God is love and God does not tolerate sin. Therefore, love cannot tolerate sin. The cross is proof of that. The brutality, the ugliness, 
The blood shed on the cross is absolute proof that God doesn't tolerate sin. If He tolerated sin, Jesus never would have had to die on the cross. But He does not tolerate sin, and neither are we called to. Tolerance and love. So what does that mean? He's talking to saints. He's talking to to believers. He's talking to the body of Christ. And He says, showing tolerance and love, what that means is, you know what, we're not always going to see eye to eye. We're not talking about sin now. We've already dealt with that. We're just talking about perspective. Life experience. Understanding. We will not always see eye to eye on these things. Show tolerance and love. We're not always in the same place spiritually. You know what? I'm good with that. You may have understanding of things I do not. That's okay. You may have learning that I have yet to receive. That's fine. I don't mind disagreements. I don't mind doctrinal debate. I don't mind differing views, differing perspectives, so long as God's Word is the final Word. And that's what's, I think, I think that's what's worked in this fellowship. I really do. I think that the reason why over all this time we haven't seen like a church split or a major division is because ultimately we come back to the Word. And I'm not saying that to our credit. I'm saying it with gratitude to the Lord. But we come around His Word. I was thinking about this on vacation quite a bit. How remarkable it is that as, as disparate as we are, and I mentioned this on Wednesday night too, as a fellowship, how, how unique and diverse this fellowship is, we still manage to come together. How do we do that? Well, we come at the foot of the cross, centered on Jesus Christ. And we seek the truth of His Word. Which means you can think anything you want, but if you're coming to His Word for ultimate understanding, you're headed the right direction. And we don't always agree on things. That's good. You know what? Paul and Barnabas didn't. Yeah, they had a big fight and split and went different directions. And the kingdom got bigger. The Gospel spread more. And by the way, there's plenty of evidence throughout the Scriptures. We have seen that Paul and Barnabas, they got, they got made up at least. They may never have served together again, but there is clearly still affection there. And reconciliation there. I think about Philippians 4 too. These poor ladies. Paul says, I urge Euodia and I urge Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. How would you like to be, ladies, Euodia or Syntyche? And for all time, you're known as one of the two ladies that didn't get along in the church. That's their claim to fame in the Scriptures. Wonderful. I can't wait to meet these two sisters and just laugh. I urge you, he says, get along. You know what Paul didn't say to Euodia and Syntyche? He didn't say, I urge you to square your theology. He didn't say, I urge you to agree on every point. He said, I urge you to live in harmony in the Lord. Different perspectives are A-OK. If I've got an issue with a brother or sister, here's the key. you got a problem with someone, a disagreement, a differing views on something, here's what you do. You make Jesus the issue. And you will find that the issue fades away. You have a problem with someone, you bring Jesus right into the midst of it because strong relationships always outlast strong opinions. But sadly, in our world, in our culture, and even in the church, strong opinions have divided weak relationships. And we have taken sides and we stand on either side of gulfs and we point to the other side saying, see, you're wrong. Instead of seeking unity with one another. Paul says in Romans 15 verse 1, Now we who are strong ought to bear with the weaknesses of those without strength and not just please ourselves. Who's to say who's weak and who is strong? Well, in my experience, those who know they are weak will run to the Lord for strength. It's kind of funny because often those who think they are strong are the weakest brothers and sisters. Because they're rising up on the wings of pride and arrogance and don't realize how truly weak they are. The more mature you are in Jesus, the more weak you realize you are. The more you understand, as Rich Mullins sang years ago, we are not as strong as we think we are. It is the weak brother that runs to the Lord who becomes strong. 
who Proverbs 18.10 says, The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous runs to it and is safe. He doesn't say the weakling. He doesn't say the pathetic. He doesn't say the heretic. He says the righteous run into the name of the strong tower of the Lord. And there we find strength and security. That's what the strong person truly does. But here is where the strength of the body is found. Verse 3, being diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Unity, henotis, in the Greek simply means agreement. They would come to a place of agreement. The unity of the spirit, the agreement of the spirit. That's very simple. We agree in the work of the spirit. We agree in what the Spirit has taught us, is teaching us, and in how He is leading us. In other words, we find our agreement in God. Not in every point of doctrine. Now, we are serious about doctrine here at the bridge. We want to know sound biblical doctrine. We want to walk by those truths. But our agreement is first and foremost in Jesus Christ. And where we disagree, we remain in Jesus Christ, and it pulls us together. Agreement, unity. The word peace, Irene, it's where we get the name Irene, like my grandmother Irene. Unity and peace. Peace meaning rest. It means accord. And in this context, the peace he's talking about is corporeal. That is, it is corporate It is for the whole body. We're not just talking about you sitting there having peace in your own little heart. We're talking about peace in the body of Christ, accord with the body. And peace, well, peace doesn't come by line by line legalistic agreement because we will never get there, my friends. We will never get there until Jesus comes. There will always be disagreement in the body of Christ. There will always be a certain degree of, well, but doesn't it teach this? Well, I've understood this. Yeah, but my background says this. That's always going to be there. If you think that we can rid ourselves of that in the church, you are wrong, brothers and sisters. That disagreement is always going to be there. So we're never going to find unity based on agreeing on every single thing that we think or understand. We will find unity in the Spirit, by the Spirit, His work among us. I love what Augustine said. And by the way, I don't agree with a lot of what Augustine said. And yet I fully expect to see him in heaven. But we're not in full agreement on points of doctrine. And yet Augustine said this, and I fully agree. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. And in all things, charity. Love. That's profound. So I'm walking around Disneyland and I'm thinking, what is it? that makes and I do this I really do my kids are looking for the next ride and I'm thinking about the church it's really kind of a sickness I think I'm thinking what is it that makes such a diverse fellowship as the bridge possible and I do think about these things as I said maybe you don't know this maybe you don't realize this I shared Wednesday night you could be sitting by someone who has vastly different theological opinions than you do and you think they think everything that you think is exactly right And they don't. And if you started having a discussion, you might be shocked to find out that this sister, this brother, thinks differently than you do. But it's true. And I know because I have conversations with everybody. It's like, whoa, I was just talking to her, and he's in there. Well, I'm not going to keep them out of the same room. As long as he sits over here and she sits over there, we're all fine. Because we don't want them to compare notes. (laughs) So I'm thinking about this. And the fact that in this fellowship we have near cessationists. Cessationists, that's those who believe that the work of the Holy Spirit actively in the church ended with the last of the apostles. That when Paul died, it really kind of died out and the, and the Spirit still works to uh, teach us the Word. But beyond that, the spiritual gifts, there are people in this fellowship, I, it's shocking, some people in this fellowship who think, I'm really uncomfortable with the gifts of the Spirit. Because I really think that was more of a first century thing. We have some of them here? Yeah. You know who else we have here? We have some charismaniacs. <laughs> People who, if you knew where they think the Spirit could really go, does really go in this world, you would be freaking out. You'd be like, we can't have that. I was thinking how the church that I grew up in 
would look at this church and think we were radically, radically Pentecostal. (laughs) And some of you have come from churches that look at this church and think you are radically, radically dry. I mean, you see what I'm getting at here? We have people in this church who are Calvinists. We have others who are Arminianists. Keep them out of the same room. We have people in this this church who are pre-tribbers. That's me. Believing that Jesus is going to pull the church out pre-the-tribulation. In terms of eschatology, that's where I stand. We have some in this church who are mid-tribbers. I'm sorry. We even have post-toasties. I mean, we've got all... The different perspectives. Under one roof, as one, listen, as one, listen, as one body, as one fellowship, who love each other, because you know what? We love the Lord. And when I look out over this fellowship, I see a bunch of people loved by Jesus, which makes me love you. I didn't know that. We are drawn together by the essential gospel. That is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We believe that and that draws us in. And by the way, you know that happens anywhere you go in the world. You run into another Christian. You run into someone who believes in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus and you are immediately connected and you don't know anything about them. You're walking through an airport and you see someone with a Jesus t-shirt on. You're like, all right. You don't know who that guy is. He could be a complete jerk, but you're like, yeah, bro. But that's the essential doctrine. It draws us. And it is the gospel that makes peace. By the way, when he says the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, we didn't make that peace. We didn't create that peace. We just maintain it. At least we're called to maintain it. If you look back in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 13, you discover that in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for He Himself is our peace. He made peace. How did He do that? Verse 15, by abolishing in His flesh the enmity. Down in verse 16, by reconciling them both in one body to God through the cross, having put to death the enmity, and He came and preached peace to you who are far away and peace to those who are near. Jesus made the peace. Jesus created the peace. He did all the heavy lifting, and now we come along and we're just the maintenance crew. We're just making sure that things are well oiled, that the peace is functioning, that that there is peace in and among us. Man, we are called to that. More church fellowships, many of which I have been a part in the past, needed to hear that message. We are called to the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Oh, we're called to get things right. No, we're not. He will make things right. We are called to the unity of this. To be diligent, he even says, to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Jesus even said in Matthew 5, 9, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Why? Well, they look like God. They do what God does. Now, you might hear this and say, I don't know. That sounds like hard work. (laughs) You have no idea. Be diligent. Be diligent. Peace always requires diligence. Peace doesn't just happen. The summer of love should have taught us that in 1967. Peace doesn't just happen. From the summer of love to Altamont, and and if you don't know the history there, Woodstock, peace, marijuana, you know, it just happens. And so they had another gathering in Altamont a couple years later, 1969, outside of San Francisco. Rolling Stones went and played for it. It was this big open-air gathering, and the Hells Angels murdered a guy. And it was ugly, and the place got trashed, and the Summer of Love experiment was over. Because peace doesn't just happen, my friends. It's worked for. It has to be diligently preserved. Which is what we're called to do. Are you willing to do that? Peace is kind of like rest. (laughs) The Hebrew writer says in Hebrews 4.10, the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works as God did from his. Therefore, let us be diligent to enter that rest. 
Work hard to get there. It's like the end of a long day and you haven't stopped till the moment your feet hit the carpet in the morning to the moment your head hits the pillow at night. You have worked for it all day long. But man, when your head hits the pillow, it is so sweet. It's that good kind of rest because you know what you did through the day was good work. You worked hard. You did well. You accomplished many things. And then you enter your rest. And so rest, peace, it takes diligence. Are you willing to diligently preserve unity? To work for it. To be among those in any church fellowship, this or somewhere else, who are working for unity and peace. If you're not, if you're among those who strive, contend, argue, dig in, what will happen is we will detour from the divine directive. Because this is not just a suggestion. This is a directive by the Holy Spirit that we diligently preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And if we don't, listen, we could lose the lampstand. The lampstand. You Bible students know the lampstand in the holy place in the temple. Seven lamps, seven oil lamps on that stand, one central shaft, and then six more reaching out, branching out from the lamp. Seven lamps was a type of the Holy Spirit, a picture in the holy temple of the Holy Spirit of God Himself. You can compare that with Isaiah 11.2, which shows the seven characteristics of the Spirit of the Lord. And so you have this lampstand, this beautiful portrayal. The Jewish people understood something of that, that this was a picture. It was light, kind of like the Shekinah glory of God, the light of the glory. And so they would light these candles on the lamp, on the lampstand, and it represented the Holy Spirit. Well, Jesus said to the church at Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2, verse 4, I have this against you, you've left your first love. This is a diligent church. This is a church who was solid on doctrine, driving out the heretic. They had doctrine down, but they forgot their first love. And so what does he say? Revelation 2.5, Therefore remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first, or else I am coming to you and will smack you about the head. I'm coming to you and I'm going to have a few words for you. He says, I am coming to you and I will remove your lampstand from you. What is he saying? I'll take my spirit. I will remove my spirit. Wait a minute. Are you saying we can lose the spirit of God? I don't think you can. I don't think individual believers in Christ lose the Holy Spirit. Because you say, you see, he said, I will abide in you. I will dwell in you by faith. I'm coming. And I'm going I'm to dwell in you. So I believe the Spirit continues to reside in believers in Jesus. He doesn't just take his Spirit away and give his Spirit and take it away. But he does remove his Spirit from churches. He does remove his Spirit from fellowships. And I've seen it and I think so have you. What is a body without a spirit? Dead. Ever been to a dead church? Ever experienced deadness in a body and wonder what's going on? David passionately cried out, Psalm 51.11, Cast me not away from thy presence and take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Because in that day, God could, God did. Gave his spirit to Saul. And when Saul rebelled, removed his spirit from Saul. Leaving him open for an evil spirit to torment him. And then David receives the spirit of God. And knowing this, realizing his sin in Psalm 51 says, Don't take your spirit from me. That was David's heart cry. And while the Lord doesn't, I believe, remove his spirit from people who have received him in faith. He does remove his spirit from a fellowship. And one of my primary prayers over 13 years, I have prayed over and over, is that the Lord would never remove His Spirit from this place. Oh, not this building. This place, this people, this fellowship. Do not remove Your Spirit from us. It's a point of my own conviction. When I realize I'm heading down a wrong road, or I'm sinning, or I'm doing something unworthy of the walk, 
I pray, Lord, don't, don't take Your Spirit from, from us. He can do that. The lampstand. And, and note this, it is not the unity of the Spirit, one thing, and the bond of peace. Get this, it's important. It's the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Okay, well, what does that mean? Well, the unity of the Spirit is found in the bond. The bond of peace. Okay, what does bond mean? Sundesmos is the Greek word, and it's a medical term. And my friends, the word means, get this, ligament. The unity of the Spirit in the ligament of peace. I find that interesting because down at the end of the chapter, verse 15... Ephesians 4.15 He says, Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into Him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body being fitted together, fitted and held together by what every joint supplies according to the Spirit. So the ligament, he talked about ligaments and joints as he's describing this body. So you've got these, these joints. What do the ligaments do? They cover the joint. They connect the joints. They provide strength to the joints. They cover. They bring stability between the joints. They restrict excessive movement so you don't get hyperextension where the ligaments are functioning correctly. They bind, if you will, with flexibility. That's where unity is found. In a fellowship where there is the bond of peace. Binding with flexibility. Strength with the ability to move. The bond of peace, the ligament of peace. What ligaments do in the physical body, peace does in the spiritual body. Which is why we need to be diligent in seeking after peace. It holds us together. Snowshoe, West Virginia, 1994, I was out skiing with a bunch of teenagers. We went every year when I was doing youth ministry in Virginia. Snowshoe, what a great place. We had these condos at the top of the hill, and we'd walk out of the condos, put on the skis, and down the hill we'd go. It was wonderful. And of course, as a, as a youth pastor at the time, I had to be sure that the students knew I could keep up with them. So we're skiing, we're all over the place, and I'm, I'm holding myself. I've got my own limitations. I didn't want to go beyond the medium level uh, trails. Snowshoe is mostly trails. So I was avoiding like the black diamond and the, the heavy trails, just the medium. I could, I could handle that. I still look pretty good, you know? So, so we're out there skiing and we come across this one trail crossing another and the one that we were crossing was the lower part of a black diamond. And we got there and we look at it and we're all stopping me and about seven or eight teenagers and we're looking down and they're like, Oh, we gotta do this. Rick, we gotta do this. Hey, let's do this. And I'm like, in my mind going, <laughs> and they're like, oh, come on, we can do this. And I'm like, oh, yeah, I think we can do this. Stupid. <laughs> so I launch down this black diamond and lose control and go off the trail completely and into the woods. And I'm thinking, this is where I'm gonna die. I'm covered in, you know, three feet of snow and my left ski is over my shoulder, still bound in my little boots. Yeah, I tore a ligament in my left leg. And in tearing that ligament, <laughs> six months I walked in a brace. Laughed at by the teenagers. <laughs> to this day I have pain in my left knee from time to time. Last night I was coming up the stairs. I'm like, ah, oh, ski accident. Stupid pride. <laughs> But ligaments are are critical to the function of the body. How do we expect to walk in a manner worthy of the calling if the ligament of peace is torn? See how important this is? And the work of the Spirit and the unity of the Spirit in the ligament, in the bond of peace, is absolutely critical to the function of any and every church fellowship. It's what we must pursue. So when we sit down at the table with disagreements or misunderstandings, the first thing is not who's right and who's wrong. The first thing is the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And we pursue that and the ligaments, the strong ligaments of peace, allow the Spirit to continue to unify. Man, I have been in church for 52 years. I was nearly born in church. See the church I grew up in? You're born, you get to church as fast as possible. 
Because you've got to be sure that you're in, you know, and you're learning. So I, I grew up in all this, and I have seen tears and splits and breaks and divisions. I, I, on more than my two hands can count, in churches, some that I've been a part of, some that I've heard about, it happens all the You know this, right? Am I, am I wrong on this point? That Ephesians 4.3 seems to be one of the most lacking things in the body of Christ. See it all the time. We saw it May 1st of this year, just this last a couple of weeks ago, in the Miami Herald, quote, Chairs were toppled and punches were thrown inside Greater Baptist Church in Macon, Georgia. Okay, what? After a disagreement about a pastor's future escalated into a full-on brawl, which is why you have no right to fire me here. It goes on and says, this is a Laura Corley in the Miami Herald wrote a Bibb County Sheriff's deputy in the church had to call for backup when things started getting ugly. For crying out loud. Unbelievable. Three days ago, the story continues that the guy who started the violence incited it is now being brought up on charges. And so the disfellowship and the disunity continues. And I read that story and my heart broke and I thought, so much for Ephesians 4.3. But listen, you need to understand this. I know nothing of that local church, so this does not come from me judging this group of people who I do not know, but I would be surprised if the lampstand had not already been removed long before the brawl broke out. Because the church was already in a place where there was no unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Here's the thing. The flesh in me and the flesh in you wants to fight. The flesh wants to be right. The flesh wants to stand up and say, what you did is not okay. Who you are is not right. What you think is absolutely wrong and I can prove it to you. That's the flesh. That is the earthly way of doing things. We are called to a heavenly approach, which is completely different. The flesh wants to protect my rights, win the argument, the Spirit. The Spirit calls for us to be diligent to the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And by the way, it's not a new desire. Check this out. Psalm 133, verse 1. 3,000 years ago, David wrote this. Behold, how good and pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. It's like the precious oil upon the head, coming down upon the beard, even Aaron's beard, coming down upon the edges of his robe, and he's describing that anointing oil, which itself is a picture of the Holy Spirit, dripping down over Aaron's head, coming down upon his beard, dripping onto his high priestly robes. And he says it is like the dew of Hermon coming down upon the mountains of Zion. From there, for there the Lord commanded the blessing, life forever. When we studied Psalm 133, I told you this. Mount Hermon is in the north of Israel, and the mountains of Zion are down in Jerusalem. What's he saying? David's saying the peace, the unity, the brotherhood that is so sweet goes from one end of the country to the other. It's on everybody. And that's the picture that God painted for us 3,000 years ago. And then 2,000 years ago, as the Holy Spirit came upon the church to draw these people together, and then Paul begins writing Ephesians chapter 4 and telling us about the unity of the Spirit in the bond, in the ligament of peace. And then he says, verse 4, There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were also called in one hope of your calling. Note that, one body with one Spirit. That's the divine order. That's even how we were created. Right? One body. I have a body and I have a spirit. Two or more bodies all together and you've got a deformity. Did you see uh, my big fat Greek wedding several years ago? Remember the the aunt, the Greek aunt, who's talking to this young man who's gotten pulled into this Greek family and it's freaking him out. And and she says, "I, I had a bump. I had a bump on the back of my neck. A little growth. And the doctor looked at it. It was my twin we call that a deformity two bodies where there should just be one two spirits where there should just be one we call possession one body one spirit 
And he says, one hope in your calling. What is the one hope? Our resurrection, my friends. One hope that when it's all said and done, we are going to go home and be with Jesus. One hope. Not many different hopes. Not hoping I'm going to get the condo in Hawaii. That is not the hope. One hope in Jesus. And he says, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. You might even say from Mount Hermon to the mountains of Zion. One Father who is over us all. Paul uses the word one, note this, seven times in those few verses. The first four refer to us. One body, one hope, one faith, one baptism. The other three refer to, speak of the triune God. We have one Spirit. One Lord. And by the way, in the first century, understand, every time the word Lord was used, they were referring to Jesus Christ. When they say the Lord in the New Testament Scriptures, it's Jesus that's being directly spoken of, Jesus the Lord. So we have one Spirit, one Lord Jesus, and one God and Father, the Trinity. All working in the unity of the body. And to be unified as one body with one hope and one faith and one baptism then is to reflect the one nature of God Himself. As we are unified, what do we do? We show the world the unity of our God. As we are at peace, we reveal to the world the kind of peace that God offers, that only God can bring. And by the way, this is not ecumenism. When he says, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all, the all refers to those who are under one Lord Jesus, not one Mohammed, not one Vishnu. Not one Buddha. It's not referring to everybody in all sorts of generic, coexistent religion. That is not the point. This is oneness by the one Spirit, by the one Lord Jesus, in the one God. And He is the one who is Father of all who are in that family, in that body. One God. I I love how this is even revealed early on. And hang with me just a couple minutes longer, maybe three. Deuteronomy 6.4, where Moses cries out, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. And so some will say, well, the Lord is one, but you Christians talk about a trinity, a triune God. Come on. Well, (laughs) I love the fact that the Lord your God, the word God is Elohim, which is a plurality. And the word one is echad, which is a plurality of oneness. And the rabbis hate that because they can't explain it. And the same word, the Lord your God, the Lord is one, was used back to describe the unity of Adam and Eve. Genesis 2.24, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and they shall become echad, one flesh. So it's a unity of oneness that describes the oneness of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And as Paul lays out one, one after another, what we see here is one plus one plus one plus one plus one plus one up to seven equals one. Seven ones that equal one. Some think that verses four through six was an early credo in the Christian church. And then Paul picked up on it and laid it out. He uses similar language. He did in 1 Corinthians 8, 6. There's one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for Him. And one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through Him. He says it in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 4. Hey, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are varieties of ministries, and the same Lord, that is Jesus. There are varieties of effects, but the same God, there we are, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit again, who works all things in all persons. Hey, there's all kinds of things that He can do in and through the body as He comforts the body, as He encourages and strengthens the body. But don't forget, there's one God. And one Spirit who is doing all of these things in the name of Jesus Christ. And that's what we signed up for. In Jesus Unity and peace. That's what we chose when we chose Jesus. In fact, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, by one Spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Whether Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, we were all made to drink of one Spirit. 
Paul is clear. That, by the way, that's the picture of baptism. It's a picture of unification, uh, of unity in the body. When you are baptized, you're not baptized into the bridge fellowship. You're baptized into the body of Christ. If you were baptized somewhere else and you come to this church, you don't have to be rebaptized into this fellowship. You were baptized into the body. And as people were getting saved right and left, 3,000 souls baptized on the day of Pentecost. And how does Paul, or Peter, or Luke actually, how does Luke describe that in Acts chapter 2? Well, the Lord was adding to His body daily those who were being saved. And so the the baptisms were pictures of that. I'm coming into the body. I'm identifying with this body. And that's why I don't believe in the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Because it says right here there's one baptism and you're talking about a second one. I actually gave that argument when I was a young man. Made that argument. And I would argue with myself right now, and there would be two ricks, and that would be a problem. <laughs> Listen, does the one baptism in verse 5 deny the baptism of the Holy Spirit? Not at all. There's one water baptism. There's one baptism by water, and that's what he's describing in Ephesians 4, water baptism that identifies us with the body of Christ. But understand, the baptism of the Spirit is very different Oh, you receive the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in baptism, but the baptism of the Holy Spirit is a unique thing, is different. Here's the difference. Listen. The one baptism that Paul refers to is what you do by faith. You decide that. You make it happen. You go into the water. You get baptized. It's your decision. The baptism of the Holy Spirit... By the way, called that by John the Baptist in John 1.33 and by Jesus in Acts 1.5. The baptism of the Spirit is what God does. For who? Anyone who wants it? Anyone who asks? Luke chapter 11, verse 13. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. And here's the problem. Then people say, you talk about this baptism of the Spirit, what's the purpose why, if I've been baptized and I have faith and I'm in the body, why, why should I want to be baptized by the Holy Spirit? Well, so that you can be part of the conviction of the sinner, the comforting of the saint, and the connecting of the body. What? God invites us to be engaged in the work of the Spirit. And the baptism of the Holy Spirit, we've talked about over and over, is very simply about God empowering us beyond ourselves to do that which we might not do so well on our own. That I can be out in the world and by the Spirit's power enabled to convict the sinner. Not judge, not go out there and tell everybody, oh, you're a bunch of sinners. But just by living my life, by speaking the word of truth in love, suddenly people get convicted. That's the Spirit's work. And I can do that to a degree myself. But how much better by the power of the Lord, Him working, leading me into situations, empowering me with His word to do what I might not normally do. Conviction of the sinner and the comfort of the saint. That my eyes are now open to comfort and love the saints. And I'll tell you what, I've seen more splits. Well, okay, I've been in more church fellowships that denied the work of the Holy Spirit probably in my lifetime than otherwise. And that's where I've seen a lot of the splits happen. Because church splits happen when people work out of the flesh. But where the Spirit is invited and welcome, you know, completely in line with the Word of God... There's a unity that happens. And we can be part of that and part of just connecting the body. God says, I want you to be involved. I want you to be engaged. And I'm going to give you the strength and the power to do that beyond yourself. But listen, hear me on this. We're almost done. Anyone who is found to be working against the oneness talked about here is working against Jesus Himself. Anyone who works for division is working against Jesus. Anyone who would seek to put apart, anyone who would throw the punch in the brawl, anyone who would say that there's this camp and there's this camp and these two camps need not be together. You are working against the purpose of Jesus who said in John 17:22, Father, the glory which You have given Me I give to them that they may be one just as We are one. I in them and in You and in Me. Or I in them and you in me so that they may be perfected in unity. 
so that the world may know you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. Last verse, verse 7, and we're going to cover the rest of it next week. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Oh. Thank you, Jesus. Grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. You know, that doesn't mean that God doles out grace to the degree that each one of us needs it. It doesn't mean that God looks at this body and says, okay, an ounce here, half a cup there. She needs a gallon, he needs a tank. It doesn't mean I'm going to get just enough grace for what I need. Not at all. Look at what he says. He says, grace is the gift. Okay, is that clear? Grace is the gift. The measure is what God gave for the gift. That is, God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. That is the measure of the gift of grace. If you can measure literally the breadth and the length and the height and the depth of the love of Christ, then you understand the measure of the gift of His grace. The gift of God's grace is measureless. It is boundless. It is infinite. And John wrote, John 1.16, For of His fullness we have all received, and grace upon grace. And so measureless grace is the only means by which we can walk in a manner worthy of the calling. His grace is measureless. Measureless grace is the only way by which we can be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. This is no charming Mary Poppins fantasy or fairy tale. This is God's plan for His one body in the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen?